Can we have a word of prayer? I join you, Father, Lord. Uh, we thank you for just the opportunity to come in your presence. Father, uh, each individual here represents a ministry, a ministry you have set in their hearts for such a long time, Father. What they do, they're very passionate about, and it's their way of helping, sharing your love story. Father, I ask that you will uh, be with us today as we share and, and learn and just be creative and come up with unique ways and learn unique ways of how to connect with the generation to help them to love you more and, and to also take a message of health and, uh, and uh, you know, helping people to make the positive change in their life that they need that brings honor and glory to thee. Father, I ask that you would be with my words, that it be your words and not my words. Father, use me today to be that vessel. And, um, and Lord, most of all, let us have a great time praising you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So, listen. Is everybody tired? Yes. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> because for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Cassio Jones. And um, I used to be, uh, I guess, clone as the Energizer Bunny. I just don't quit. I just keep going. And I'm a very energetic individual, so forgive me if I'm all over the place in this room and your eyes are bouncing back and forth, but hang in there. It all makes sense and all come together. Um, when we work with the youth, it's important that we're able to um, have ability to, you know, as I say, connect with them. Do you agree or disagree? And as you know, you work with the youth, their energy is nonstop at times. And, you know, fortunately, we would like to keep up with them. But um, anyhow, so let's have some fun. Is that OK? It's Sabbath hours, but we want to learn. We want to um, fill us up with a whole lot of resources and, and have a good time. We're a very unique group. We're kind of a small-knit family right now. So you're going to see each other for the next few days. And um, if you get a chance to interact with one another, please do. And um, at any time, if you have any questions, stick your hands up. And I would like to um, you know, just make it kind of like informal. Is that OK with you guys? OK. All right. So this lesson we're going to talk about is how to make an impact. And that's me right there, Cassia Jones. OK, this yeah, is going to be a rough crowd tonight. OK. Now, by the way, if I say something that kind of like a hmm, just go with it, OK? You know, Moses, God used Moses, and he had a speech issues. So the Lord tried to use me as much as he can. So just go with whatever comes out of my mouth. Just try to nod your head and say, OK, I understand what you're trying to say, OK? And you guys are allowed to laugh. You're allowed to smile and have a good time. It's cool? OK, this was feedback time. Cool? cool? All right, cool. All right. All right, well, he was working. Pedro. So. Um, I apologize. We're trying to get everything booted up here, and um, it was working before. So, um, so have any of you are involved in health ministry right now? Who's involved in health ministry? Raise your hand, please. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. And the rest of you are. And how many of you are in youth ministry? One, two. So a little different. So we got health ministry and youth ministry, some youth ministry are not involved in health ministry, and some health ministry are not involved in youth ministry. So we're trying to identify a way of connecting us together and connecting with the, we've all agreed there's a, there's a need for taking um, health to a younger generation, yes or no? Yes. 
and we will look at our statistics that are straight across the board. And it's not just the United States, it's across the world. There's a an, major issue in lifestyle, and, and the generations, the younger generations are starting to see the effects of unhealthy lifestyle. Obesity issues are just rampant in the United States. Is it that way in other countries as well? Have you noticed in your country? It changed obesity starting to be at a younger, younger age? Okay. Um, so it's, we cannot sit back and, and just take a stand and, and have our blinders on to identify that there's a problem going on and not take action. And I think it's very important for us to realize that um, we can do so much as an adult, but imagine what it would be like if we created an army of youth leaders, of a younger generation who comes behind us, with, who has information to witness to their peers, that's very powerful coming from a peer than so much from an adult. Because generations young, I mean, the youth listen to their peers. I mean, once you get a certain age, and especially if you're the parent, there's like this uh, blah, 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 blah effect that they don't hear. Remember the peanut was the teacher? Womp, 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 womp. It's like they don't get it, or they're just a dissociation. And, um, and don't get that with every adult, because it's like, seem like it's just the parents. Like, like they don't listen and they need certain role models in their lives. And as you know, youth workers, you're, you have that connection with the kids. So they do listen, but the relationship with their peers can be very, very powerful. So imagine the ability to take that information, put it into a mind of a youth, and put that youth out there in their community. How more powerful and aggressive that could be of spreading the message of you know, taking care of God's temple or temple maintenance. That would be powerful, wouldn't it? I mean, but we actually have a momentum change, not just in the church, but in the community around us. And, and you know, when you think about obesity, when you think about lifestyle choices, we know 70 to 80% of all chronic diseases are due to lifestyle choices. You know, and when you see younger kids who have hypertension at age 12, I mean, what's going on in their life that's causing that much destruction? The path, their next 20, 30 years are, are, won't happen in that current pattern. So it's, it's important to be able to connect and reach down with them and to see that. Now, imagine this army of youth health ministers, okay? Now, Anybody have an idea how to build an army like that? Well, I mean, I mean, think about it. Are we here to just figure out ways to just tell the youth about health? Or are we here to replicate that? If you really think about it, the gospel message was to go out and make disciples. We made disciples. The 12 went and empowered the world. What we have today is from those 12. If we could do the exact same thing and empower our youth and find the right youth individuals who God has called to a health ministry. Because if you're called to your ministry, God is still choosing individuals to keep this going until he comes. So imagine the ability to connect and find that health minister at a young age and really buy in and connect with them. And, and then imagine what they could do. 
But the thing is, we have to understand the most important things when we work with the youth. It's not about the information of data. It's not about the information of do's and don'ts. It's about Jesus. We're able to give them the ability to connect and build a relationship with Jesus. That is the first thing to do. Do we agree or disagree? Okay. Now, I, I, I know I'm saying some, hopefully some good stuff that's coming out of my mouth, but have some fun. Yeah, all right. Listen, we're talking about Jesus and health. What better can that be, right? right? right. You know, it's awesome, the opportunity. Have, have you guys ever worked with, with effectively changing somebody's lifestyle? Has anybody ever done that in this room? Yeah. Isn't this powerful yeah. to see? It's, it's exciting to see the effect. You can remember when they were just crepit or just a couch potato or, or just totally just a rack. And then you get to see the positive changes. And you know, the best part is the Holy Spirit comes to do all this. And it's just awesome to be part of the transformation that somebody goes through and, and, and to just to be there and to say, wow, that's, it's like, you know, people say athletes, you know, they say they'll do it for free, and people think athletes have the, has the best life in the world because they get to play sports and, and get paid big money. But I'm going to tell you something. Health ministry is the best. I'm going to tell you that. Health ministry is the best because we effectively change people's lives spiritually and physically in a very unique way. So, okay, let's get back to this building this youth army. How cool is that, right? I know, right? I know y'all brains are thinking, where is he going with this? But I'm telling you, we can make a difference if we're able to connect with our youth, give them Jesus, first and foremost. <laughs> they must understand that a health message is not about, it's against my religion, why I don't eat this. When a youth says, it's against my religion, they don't have Jesus in the right place in their heart because it's not a religious thing. It's about taking care of what God has given you. You with me? And so it's so important for us to figure out ways to connect with the youth, give them the understanding of that relationship. Because when they understand that relationship, they understand the value of themselves. They see themselves in a different way and realize that how I treat myself it's basically saying how I really feel what Christ has done for me. Because the value of the blood that was shed for me, I was paid with the price. And so who am I to tarnish this, this vessel that God has given me just the way I want to do it, the way I feel I, I want to eat, the way I feel like I want to treat myself? And what we're doing is you're giving them this sense of understanding that foundation, who they belong to, who they connect with. And that gives them a different swagger in life. You know, it gives them a different walk because they understand their position. So imagine that. So you got a youth, right, who now knows Jesus, okay? And you got a youth now, you're connecting them, giving them information about how to make better choices in life. Now this youth is now, is now understanding that, hey, I'm part of God's army. And then I'm able to get this information of what it means to have respect for this body, what I need to do to take care of this body, and what I'm able to basically, how can I share this new information I have with my peers? 
Now they're out in their world in the school classroom. They're out in the lunchroom, the cafeteria, and they see all the stuff that's destructive, the processed foods, or they're seeing, you know, you know, sitting around home playing the video games. They're out there talking to the parents, hey man, let's go outside for a walk, and let's go for a bike ride. And they'll have an opportunity to share with their peers, move with their peers, and guess what the opportunity is? An opportunity to talk and share about Jesus. There's so many different ways that we can intertwine the gospel with health. We all see that. But it must start with first helping the individual understand their value, helping them understand their giving of proper information to make the change. Now, okay, let me go a little further. Now, I like to have fun, as you know this, right? And uh, I'm going to pull a couple of you up, and we're going to have some fun together. Is that cool? Mm -hmm. All right. So here's to, to really get this point down. I need, yeah. Three volunteers. Gary? Come on. Not, not a bit physical. Kind of physical, but not too physical. No, no, I don't want to explain. Okay, gotcha. What's your name? Richard. Richard, come here, Richard. Come here, stand over here. Richard, it's going to be Ivan. Okay. Denise, come on. Put that down. Put that down right there. All right. Emily, come over here, please, too. All right. Here's a little story about Ivan. Ivan's on a plane, and the plane's starting to fly along, fly along, <coughs> fly along. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he heard the, the, the intercom. <coughs> this is your captain speaking. Uh, we're on a few little terminals here. Could you mind uh, fastening your seatbelt? <coughs> Fasten your seatbelt, and, and I'm going to rough further here. Be careful now. So he's going to rough further. Going through rough weather, that's it, that's it, that's it. And all of a sudden, Ivan's starting to really get real scared, real panicking. He's starting to understand, like, man, I don't want to die on this plane. This is not comfortable for me. And he's really scared. Uh. <laughs> and then, and then he noticed on the other side that these two kids are just sitting there, just la, 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 having a great time playing their video games. And he's like, just doesn't get, like, don't you understand? Aren't you scared? Don't you? Yeah, that's it. Don't you understand? You're about to die. There you go. That's good. You're pretty good so far. All right. So anyhow, so he's really panicking, really getting scared. And then he just finally says, I can't take it anymore. And says, why are you so calm? Why are you so calm? No, a little more static. A little more. Why are you so calm? That's good. And they said, you see, our father's the pilot, and he promised to get us home safely. Okay? Good. Have a seat. Have a seat. Have a seat. Have a seat. You see, those kids knew who their father was. And they were able to connect, and no matter what was going on in their life, their heavenly father was there. I use this analogy story because when working with the youth, sometimes we have to find creative ways to connect with them. And you, sometimes I just love using stories to really get home with them, to anchor down. And so with that message was just for them to grasp and, and to understand. The Heavenly Father is everything. You will hear me repeat this whole weekend, it's about relationship. If you are in ministry, if you are in youth ministry, health ministry, and you don't comprehend relationship, you're doing something wrong. Don't take it personal. It ain't about you. It ain't about the accolades you're going to get at church. It ain't about the attention you're going to get standing on the pulpit. It's about Jesus. We're here to spread Jesus. Okay. So. Now we understand the concept of family, the family of 
of the Heavenly Father, who we connect with and how we connect with him. Now imagine the opportunity that you are understanding your individual ministry. Teaching kids or teaching individuals how to connect with their calling is the key. You know, for some of us, we wake up in the morning and we say, wow, I just really wish I was doing this. I really wish I was doing this because this is what my passion is. How many of us in the room are actually doing a job or have an opportunity to do your passion every day? Okay? Now, you see, we were born, you know, it tells us in Psalms, what, Psalms 139, that God was knitting us in the womb. And to me, it's like, he's down there, okay, I'm going to give Castro the ability to gab. No, not singing, but make him talk all day long. <laughs> and, but it's like, he knows us better than we understand and knows ourselves. And he gives us gifts and talents. Some of us could sing, some of us can't. Some of us could, you know, really good with numbers, and some of us really have to use a calculator, okay? But when you use your gifts and talents to glorify the Lord, that's your ministry. And when we're working with the youth, and especially with youth ministry, we need to find those individuals that God has called for youth ministry. I mean, for health ministry. You understand what I'm saying? Because imagine having an army and these individual kids or youth are just going to pass time. They're going to your meetings. They're going to just to hang out and pass time. Is that truly effectively helping them? Is that truly effectively helping a ministry that you're trying to birth in your community? It's important to have the right individuals as part of your community, or else you have a, 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 ministry that, a, a ministry that will be stagnant. Because you have individuals in that ministry who are just staggered and slowed along, they cause problems, they'll, you give them opportunities to participate, and they're not really heartfelt, they're not passionate about it, and they'll let you down and certain issues occur. And we all know that we've seen that before in other ministries that we've been involved in, right? It's important as you build in this army, that you're able to connect with those and weed out those who are not really truly. Because when we deal with our youth, our generation, you will find that some who don't have the Jesus relationship are following the footsteps of the parents told, or the traditions. They are being dragged along to go to church. And sometimes the parents just throw them in certain things to pass time. And it's not doing them any good either. So as soon as the individual is able to identify, this is my pa what I'm passionate about. And it's okay once you realize, you know, you say, okay, Michael, you're not really passionate about this. So, hey, but I do know you're passionate about music. Why don't you go over here? Okay? We can still be that mentor and work with them and guide them and connect them to be useful where God wants them to be. Because when you yourself, and I have plenty of stories, we're going to talk about this weekend, but when you spend time doing things that you want to do, that you think you want to do, outside of God's path for you, I call it the uh, Nineveh effect. You're like Jonah. You just go in the wrong direction, and he has to bring you back in line, and, you know, and support is so much easier. Life and doors open when you just line yourself up with Jesus, or with, with the plan he has for you. So, okay, we got the concept of teaching them you know, the relationship with the Heavenly Father. Now it's, we identify with them to help them identify their ministry. 
Now we give them information. Now, we have a health ministry that has a lot of information around. But yet, <laughs> there's still a lot of unhealthy people around. Why do you think it's difficult for people to process information that's all around available and still make unhealthy lifestyle choices? They're chauvinistic in many ways. Uh, they've heard it maybe all of their lives. Mm -hmm. And they feel, I know that. I'm not paying attention to that. I'm, I'm not going to get sick. They're uh, indestructible. Good point. Very good point. Anybody else? Habit. Habit? Yep. Ma'am? But we still have to learn how to integrate God in every, every aspect of our lives. Right? That even goes to the healthy choices. I love steak. I know when I get upset, that's the first thing I want to have. So, but if I am integrated God in my decision making, perhaps I wouldn't have the steak. Perhaps. <laughs> True. But there's a, it's also a chemical reaction of what draws you to the steak. Mm -hmm. But yet, good point. It's like, where is God? As a final, I heard this pastor made a, um, a sermon, and his message was that whatever your last decision, source to make your decision is your God. Whereas if we have an issue, we have a concern, we should go to God with that. Instead, we turn to the bonbons. <laughs> or, return, or, or, or return to some people in the world will turn to the horoscopes to make the decision for them. Some people will turn to their friend and gossip with their friends about this instead of turning to our Heavenly Father who knows and will lead us and guide us. And the Holy Spirit gives us the right path to make. But, you know, it's, it's true, as you're saying, a lot of times we make decisions, um, wrong decisions, but those are lifestyle choices based on emotions, based on... Um, you know, what we feel is going to make us feel good in that situation. Okay. So when we are able to weed out and give the information to this generation, imagine a new or a health message that incorporates a greater component on action. You feeling me? Go back 20 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, when you had a health Sabbath, what was the main topic? Diet. Vegetarian cooking. Yes or no? Very often. More than very often. <laughs> it was pretty much. It was all vegetarian cooking. Now, as vegetarian cooking, it's so the thing, why we still have people overweight, dying of heart disease, who are vegetarians. And then you have this mindset of classifying people. Are you a vegetarian? You're not a vegetarian. Are you a vegetarian? Are you, are you a vegetarian? So many times I hear when I'm out speaking, people ask, Castro, are you a vegetarian? I'm like, because I'm a fitness guy, that's the first thing they ask me. We should not put people in categories, whether they are or are not. We should just love people. 
and let the Holy Spirit do whatever they needed to be convicted of. And that's the same message and attitude we need to have if we're working with our youth, that we want to pour into the youth as they're working with other people. It's not just to point fingers and say what you should do and what you're not to do. Give information, give quality data to back it up, but also just love. But let's get back to the point of action. Imagine good eating habits along with a program that is designed to help people make the appropriate changes they need to make, such as teaching them how to physically transform their bodies in a healthy way. Because in the world, they got all the acting diets, they got all the fads programs out there, all based upon changing the way you look, changing the way you feel about your body, a very superficial outward approach to help an individual, hey, you deserve it. You deserve to look good, you know? Which is all about the me. You see what I'm saying? That's what the world portrays. And we have brothers and sisters in the church because there's nothing else really counteracting it or working from a spiritual aspect to giving truth, buy into it. Because that's all that's available to them. People want results. They want results that they could follow something, put into play, and get to the goal closer to a healthier range like they're trying to achieve. Because media bombards them with ab shots, bombarding them with the skinny girl, bombarding them with all this stuff. But the real emphasis is living a life that glorifies the Lord, taking care of God's temple, and focusing on being healthy and active for your own individual ministry. And guess what? Your body's built-in set point will get you to the body that God has created for you to have. It's very simple. When you come from that approach, it's a truly lasting, effective way that people get results, they're happier, they're spiritually growing, and guess what? They actually fit in their pants. But imagine the ability to teach a young generation the concept of movement, the basic concept of exercise science, so they could just learn how to apply. What does it mean to, what does resistance training means? What does aerobic training means? What, how, when is the best time to apply this? It doesn't have to get very deep and very, you could go forever and ever with exercise science, because it's called science, and science just keeps going and going and going. Keep buying new data, new research on this and that. But giving the kids the basics to understand that, along with good eating habits, along with the, the aspect of connecting somebody with the Heavenly Father, along with interacting with your peers, the love relationship you have with your brothers and sisters. Imagine a health ministry that we could give our youth that really transforms an individual mind, body, social, and spirit. Quite different, isn't it? Very relative to the day. Very empowering, giving the kids something in their pocket they could choose and to pull out and to interact with. Change them, help them change their community. Because we'd like to say they're the generation X or whatever, but they're the generation now. These are young individuals, no matter if they're age 13, 12, 12 I mean, they're out there. In, you ever have middle school, ever work with middle school students in a public school setting? A little bit. Awful. 
I mean, and I don't mean the kids, but that environment that they're in, it's awful. I mean, they're so exposed to so much at such a young age. Their brain hasn't fully developed yet, and they're bombarded with all these emotionals, this sexual, this body image effect, and, and just trying to fit in, it's hard. But if they have Jesus, they're able to identify who they are at a younger age, and that gives them an ability to fight back. It gives them ability to create this shield around them. When they have all this negative TV thrown at them from the world, they could bounce it back and say, that's not me, that's Satan lying. I'd have to buy into that. And I think as youth leaders, I think as health ministers as we are, we need to find ways to replicate what we do. And finding time to pour into a younger generation could be very powerful. And I know probably one of you are thinking of one individual in your church who could be that young person to pick up the mantle and take it out in the community. There's got to be. But I think one of the things that we need to do is really pray about it and say, Lord, help me to, and open my eyes so I could identify that individual. Help me to be that conduit that can help build this army of youth health ministers. That's, come on, think with me. That's very cool and very unique. That's giving kids something that they want, something they want to participate in. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know, it's now when the Holy Spirit's in the room, we all talk the same. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's interacting with all of us. You know, it, 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 it's important to, to identify that we're here for a reason. This is not a mistake that this is a small group. This is not a mistake that each one of you, you know, took the wrong exit, took the right exit, that got here when the time you got here, to be here when you get here. It's by plan. And according to this plan, you know, it's all going to lead a path right back to Christ. And I think the harvest is so ready right now. The world is just so hungry right now that we're outnumbered. We need more health ministers out there spreading the message about God's plan and well-being. Because people out there are suffering, they're hurt, and guess what? And until they're able to come with some understanding, it's hard for them to really digest the Christ thing. You with me? If you're hungry, and I'm just going to tell you, hey, sister, do you know about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, is that your stomach or my stomach? Oh, let me tell you more about it. it. We have to give them what they need right now, and there's this health need in our community. By the actions of giving them information, the right information, they said, wow, that makes a lot of sense. They said, where you learn that from? <laughs> it's right here in the Bible. <laughs> Solid information right here. And they're like, wow, I didn't, I didn't get that. Because we understand the mind-body has an intimate relationship. And this message is for us who are pretty much raised in this message, we know it. But for the rest of the world, it's foreign to them. It's a great opportunity, great, great opportunity. Anyhow, I think my time's about running out. And how am I doing? Five more minutes? Wow, I got five more minutes. Yes.
probably most of us have heard about Rick Warren. Yeah. And how he's really got a passion for helping people live healthier, lose weight, and all. And we might be the tail if we aren't careful. Yes, yes. And actually, okay. Let me get, so I'm being recorded right now, so let me be. Think about it. We were the beginning. Right now, we're not the front. Okay? And even with technology, it's, we need to really accelerate the catch up. Okay? And this is what I'm saying it's so important for us to really put our helmets on and get in the trenches and fight back. Because we're part of God's army. We're part of God's special army. Has a big R on it, you know what I mean? A big squadron. Okay, that was funny. <laughs> I didn't get that one. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and the thing is, it starts with, like I've said before, it starts with that relationship. Nothing else matters, no matter what ministry you're trying to do, if the individual does not know Jesus. Because you can't effectively have a behavior change until Christ is in the right place in your heart then there's an attitude change, and then there's a behavior change. You can focus on the behavior change all you want. It will last for a short period of time. But until Christ really gets in, chisel things out, and mold us and shape us the way we're supposed to, then we see things differently. We see the food. We see sitting on our butt differently. We see the fact of, you know, that I need to make time to be active. Listen, if we give God one hour a day, He'll make the 23 hours better. It's not paying tide, people. We trust him with, with 90% that he's going to make 90% work better than we can make 100%. We can do the exact same thing with our being physically active because he'll take care of the rest of the day for us because we invested and gave back and took care of what he has given us. Does that make sense? So you're absolutely correct. Having the youth to understand the biblical principles is what it's all about. But you cannot relate biblical principles if they don't believe in the biblical part. Okay? Totally, totally, that's, our, that's the main focus. We have to be out the box when we're thinking with our youth. Because the world is out the box, attacking our youth. You could barely, you could... You don't have to change the message, and you don't have to alter it at all. But sometimes how we present it to them can be per individual. Yes, ma'am? They're doing it in small groups. Exactly. Yeah. Small groups works. Mm -hmm. So imagine, here we go again, <laughs> this youth minister, <laughs> young, Working in small groups with his peers. This person understands biblical principles. 
This person understands good eating habits. This person understands trusting God with life decisions. This person understands the importance of exercising. This person understands the importance of, you know, just the concept of the, you know, the eight laws of health. He puts it all together and he's just hanging out with his friends and he is living example of what it's like to follow Christ and let Christ lead his life and be a light in the world in his little community. And what is that doing? Changing his friends. Hey, brother, you want to drink? No, I don't, I don't want to drink that. Well, why? Well, you see, the Lord gave me this body and gave me my mind. I can't communicate with them. I'm intoxicated. And plus, alcohol has an effect. It's a diuretic, and it pulls water. You start going scientific on them. <laughs> it pulls water out, and I have to hey, my waters have big, nice muscles. How great would that be having a generation of health ministers who's able to articulate that in their community? But that starts with you guys educating yourself. That starts with you guys being able to pass it on to the right youth in your community. But guess what? God already has them out there waiting for you. They're there waiting for you. You don't even have to go and run after them. I guarantee you, after this day, the Lord's going to keep doing his stuff, and they're going to come and find you. You get yourself ready in your own individual. See, when I went to school to go in our program, you couldn't smoke. You couldn't do all those things because you represented this career field. You're walking billboard. We should be that walking billboard if we're saying we're health ministers. You feeling me? So sometimes we have to check our own life because people are watch what we're doing. All right. Any more questions, ma'am? Yeah. Always wait inside there for until the bus because the bus stop is right there. Yeah. So I would sit inside of there and wait. And I was coming out last week one evening and someone passed. So he said, Hello! I said, I'm coming. I'm on it. You know, sometimes, yes, but you know, you, it's a big difference. You coming out of Popeyes, then you coming out of Popeyes like this. <laughs> so that actually, but if it's a cold outside, you're inside, keep yourself warm and so forth. You know, yes, ma'am. They got it. Once they got it, they're going to talk it. Exactly. Because exactly. they have no problem telling you about the video games, exactly. what video games to buy, or what movie to go and see. Because they connected with it. 
they digest it. You know, we just got to do the same, help them to connect and digest Jesus. And then we also help them to connect and digest with the health ministry. Because you're right, especially young man, this testosterone going, they're trying to fit themselves in society. And that's the time you grab and mold them and say, it's not about you. It's not about the outward appearance. It's about taking care of what God has given you, temple maintenance. And they're like, oh, that's just cool, temple maintenance. That's right. Anyhow, guys, thank you so much for allowing me to take your time. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward this weekend sharing some more with you guys and, and sharing some stories, what I've gone through. And I apologize. Uh, my message today, I had a whole PowerPoint presentation, but because I guess the Lord wanted to say it this way, so it all works out for good. All right, appreciate it. Now it works now, right? Okay, thank you. All right, uh, good, I guess the word's good evening. Um, I'm Dwayne McBride, and I direct the Institute for Prevention of Addictions at Andrews University. And to my left here is Dr. Gary Hawkins. Um, he's Associate Director of the Institute for Prevention of Addictions, and also an Associate Director of the Health Ministries Department at the General Conference. Now, Gary is, is, a, is an MD and a DPH. And so if you address question to him, please address him as Dr. Doctor. Uh, Hopkins. <laughs> well, actually, we were in the Netherlands um, doing a presentation in June, and uh, you know, Germanic culture is a little formal, and so I'm, I'm, I was addressed as Dr. McBride. I have a PhD, and Gary's addressed as Dr. Dr. Hopkins. I have a question for you. So it, it's interesting. But what we're going to, in fact, we'll be talking this this whole um, you know this whole weekend on is really the concept of resiliency, kind of be building about what that means. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm from Andrews University. I was born and raised in Chicago, which is why I speak English perfectly. And uh, Gary is from uh, Bodai, California. Mm -hmm. originally. Yeah, originally, and currently lives in Idaho. And so he travels a lot around the world doing uh, prevention education for the General Conference all over the world and working uh, with us at the Institute for Prevention of Addictions. Um, I'm, uh, is anyone here from the Inter-American Division? Inter-America. Inter yeah, Inter Inter-America? Sure. All right. Inter-America, I lived in Miami 13 years. I worked at the University of Miami. And I always consider the IAD my second home. And uh, Elder George Brown was the president then. I don't know if anyone knows Elder Brown. He's retired. I think he's still alive, last I knew. Um, and he's very dear to my heart. Um, he is a man of enormous energy, enormous intelligence, and enormous wisdom. And uh, I uh, chaired a hospital board in Miami for a while, and Elder Brown was on it. He says, Twain, uh, 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 um, do you realize that at 9 p.m. the devil takes the chair? Okay. So we're going to go a little past 9, but we won't go too much past 9, so you know, the devil doesn't take the chair here. And Elder Brown's also very dear to me because he baptized my son. Okay. Uh, my son was, uh, was, was very impressed with Elder Brown's sermons and his vocabulary, and uh, he used words my son didn't understand. So my 10-year-old uh, son would write down every word that he didn't understand that Elder Brown preached. And after the sermon, he'd go up and you know, tap Elder Brown on the sermon in the greeting line. He says, um, you know, Elder Brown, I have some words I don't understand. And Elder Brown would sit with my son in the back row of the church and explain every word that he didn't understand. So the IED is dear to my heart. So anyway, oh, we have a few more chairs. What we're going to talk to uh, these next few days on is, is really resilience and the role of resilience in healthy choices. Now, resilience is, is a neat kind of concept um, in, in terms of what it means. Resilience is really um, when you don't engage in high-risk behaviors, you engage in pro-social behaviors, and you're in a high-risk environment. 
you know, we often look at uh, you know, what makes a youth make bad choices. Well, we kind of want to look at what makes, what's involved with youth making good choices. You know, the key question is, what is it in the personal, social, relational, environmental world that makes us resilient? Then how can we use this? Well, you know, in some ways when you think of Adventist and Adventist youth, um, you know, we're not in bad environments. I mean, you know, I, uh, I work at Andrews University. It's certainly uh, a very holy environment, nothing but purity around us. You know, there's no bad environments that our kids live in. Well, isn't that true, Gary? Not really. All right, well, Gary, how, how, how can you mean our kids live in bad environments? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Whoops. Here it is. I can have a basket. Yeah, you have a Well, you know what? You imagine you stand in a classroom, and you and I have been teaching for an awful long time, and you wonder how many of the kids in the room have been told they weren't wanted, they were a mistake, they were the worst thing that ever happened to the family. And teachers see this a lot. Kids who are badgered at home, who don't necessarily look abused. Yet you have to wonder, how come some of those kids do well? And that's the concept of resilience. It's kind of like the child of an alcoholic who does well. It's kind of like the kid who came out of the hard part of town in Chicago, where would that be? South side and west side. South side and west side of Chicago, who's doing well. Or maybe even Jesus of Nazareth. You know, didn't, didn't someone say, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, that's right. I remember that. And doing well. And then that's the concept of resilience. When we study risk, we come away going, they're at risk, but we don't know what to do about it. When we study resilience, we say, they're successful because of this. And now we know what to do about it. And, and we're going to spend the next two days talking about this. And you know, bad neighborhoods are all the things we already <coughs> talked about. But you know, one of the things that's really changed in the, in the world in the last few decades is really the internet. Um, and the internet has put us all in an extraordinary risky neighborhood. With a touch of a button, you can be in the hardest core pornography. Within the touch of a button, you can see a recipe how to make methamphetamine. I'm not advising you do that, but you can actually go to Google and say, how do I make methamphetamine, and you'll get a recipe. I chair a health department in Berrien County, Michigan, and I told our health officer that, and he didn't believe me, so he Googled that, and lo and behold, there was a recipe on how to make methamphetamine. And it's a felony to possess that. Yeah, and <clears throat> actually, when he went to that site and he started writing it down, a message from the DEA appeared, this is the spot that we're monitoring, we'll be visiting you. <laughs> so <clears throat> he, we had explained uh, to the DEA what he was doing. But a touch of a button puts us in a very high-risk neighborhood. It's a true story. And, and we also, drugs are available everywhere. We often think that drugs are just available in the highest risk neighborhoods. No. One of the questions that's asked in an annual survey called Monitoring the Future, that's done out of the University of Michigan, is how long would it take you to get a hold of the following drugs? Okay, alcohol. Well, you know, alcohol's pretty fast. You know, it's sold in every grocery store. You can get someone 21 to get it for you. It doesn't, you know, that's, all right, that makes sense. Heroin. The average length of time it takes a kid in the United States to find heroin, they report, is about a half hour. Half hour. Cocaine, a little bit less. Methamphetamine, less than that. Well, I didn't quite believe that. When my kids were teenagers <laughs> at Andrews Academy, pure environment, a pure community, uh, I said, you know, I'm looking at this data, and, and you know, in a half hour you get anything? And my, uh, my son said, oh, yeah. I said, not very, oh, oh, yeah. And uh, we were driving home, and he says, uh, Dad, there's a local drug dealer. His name's Cookie. He's walking by Apple Valley. Okay, well, my 12-year-old son knew who the drug dealer was in Berrien Springs, Michigan, and he was walking within 100 yards of the school. So all of our kids live in bad neighborhoods. They can get drugs anytime. 
They can hit a button even accidentally and enter hardcore pornography. And they can find out how to make methamphetamine with just a couple words into Google. So I think it's important for us to realize that all of our children, all of the youth in our church, live in high-risk neighborhoods. So what do we do to make them resilient, to overcome those risks? What about 915? Oh, sorry. So, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to watch it anymore. 930? Yeah, we might put it Remember, Elder Brown told me the devil takes care at 9. And I'm in the IED territory. All right. Um, we'll talk a little bit about information. Oh, information is useful. Point three up there is information um, is useful because it can correct myths and provide a platform for change. You know, we have to kind of know in order to change. But, you know, there's some real problems. Um, you know, there's a tendency to believe that if we know, we act. All right, how many people here know that you should, uh, that we should exercise? Um, how much should we exercise today, do doctor, doctor? Oh, we should, I, I, we should have a regular exercise program. How long should well, we do? Five days a week. Five days a week? Yeah. How often uh, should we, uh, how long should we exercise? At least a half hour. At least a half hour, five days a week. All right, how many people exercise at least a half hour, five days a week? Raise your hands. All right, where's, where's, uh, where's, uh, where's Cassio Jones? All right, what, you all know this? What? How, how many of you know you should? How many of you know you should? All right. All right. You know. I say I know, but we don't act. All right. I do 30 minutes. Did you notice that our hands didn't go yeah, up? Yeah, our hands didn't go up either, guys. All right. So, you know, knowledge is not enough is kind of what we're saying. Knowledge is not. Knowledge is important because it corrects errors and it gives a platform for change. But we know, but we don't do. As uh, Paul said, what did Paul say? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so, yeah, Paul was, Paul was talking about number two here. Um, you know, we just know, but we don't act. Well, so we're going to talk about what makes us resilient. What makes youth resilient? Well, you know, and, and the family is one of the first things that's important. Now, over these next few days, we'll march through a whole lot of things. And, you know, when the family doesn't work, then we'll talk about other things. But the family is important. You know, Ellen White talks about there's only a couple things that go from Eden to eternity. The Sabbath which we have just entered, and the family. The family is, is very, very crucial. We know that one of the most, one of the best things that protects children, youth, and a high-risk neighborhood, from the south side of Chicago, to Liberty City in Miami, where I lived, you know, I lived in Miami. I'm not sure what it is in Orlando. But from the highest-risk neighborhoods, the family is really crucial. How many stories of great individuals do they give credit to their family, to their mother, for bringing them out of this, this terrible environment? Now, Abraham Lincoln said, all that I am and all that I hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. You know, so families are really crucial. Now, emotional bonding, unconditional love. You know, families can reflect Jesus Christ in unconditional love. The unconditional love we give our children is enormously protective, enormously protective. The emotional bond is, is, is as strong as almost any kind of physical bond. If we bond with children in our families, it's amazingly protective. Supervision, you know, monitoring. Where are our kids? Role modeling. You know, if parents, uh, one of the worst things we can say is do as I say, not do as I do. You know, I remember, um, I, I grew up in Chicago, which is where I speak English so well. And um, most, my mother became an Adventist because she wanted to break three generations of alcoholism in her family. Her father, her grandfather, her great-grandfather were alcoholics. Her cousins were alcoholics. And she decided that she was going to make a change so that I wouldn't become an alcoholic. 
65 so far it's worked. Are the ads pretty good, Gary? Yeah. Okay. Odds are good enough to become an alcoholic. Pretty good. Me too. Yeah, you too. Yeah. So, so our odds are good. Um, in Roma, you know, I had so many of my cousins would say to their children, look, I smoke, it's a terrible habit. Please don't smoke. Smoking kills. Don't smoke. All right, anyone want to guess how many of my, what percent of my cousin's children started smoking? 100%. Every child of my cousins, I had, uh, I had one, five cousins, and every one of their children smoked because every one of them said, don't smoke, it's a terrible habit. Look at me, look how I talk. So we really role model for our children. What we say is not as important as what we do. Now, this is kind of gets into Gary's area. You know, there's some research that suggests that you know some bad genes may not turn on if in fact we um, you know we we don't engage in that behavior. There's some evidence that there's some genetic influence on alcohol, right? And and you know that means that the alcoholism that's rampant in my mother's family, um, I may have that gene. And I probably do. Yeah, I have never taken a drink because if I have so many of my relatives that are alcoholics, I felt I should never take that drink. Now, you know, my children might have that gene. I keep telling them, you know, you never want to try because you don't know. But some genes don't turn on if we don't engage in the behavior. And that's a very important reason for role modeling. Well, one of the neat things that Gary and I are engaged in is really looking at family dinners. And uh, there's a study done out of Columbia <coughs> University in which uh, they've been collecting a wide variety of data for many, many years on family dinners. Um, and, you know, Gary, I'm going to throw up some slides. Why don't you talk a little bit about family dinners? Okay. Uh, oh, wait, I, wait, I forgot. i got to go through a couple slides first. I forgot to go through things. All right, I talked about unconditional love. This is data that we've collected over about 20 years at Adventist colleges and universities. So I'm kind of throwing a whole bunch of data together. And um, we're looking at use of alcohol in the last year. If your parents accept you unconditionally, about 30% said, you know, and look, about 35% of our kids drink on an annual basis. It's a fact, you know, um, it's just the way it is at Adventist schools around, around the country, even around the world. But if the parents say there's unconditional love, 30% um, drank. If they said, my parents don't unconditionally love me, 51% drank. If there's warmth and love in the family, 29% drank. No love and warmth in the family, 35% drank. All right, it's really important to remember, you know, unconditional love, emotional warmth in the family <laughs> protects our youth. All right, family dinners. Okay, okay. Can, can I do a resilience thing before you of get course. Of course. You know, I, I started back in 1998 to look at the world's literature on resilience to find out what is, and, and I found 175 articles and I read them all and I copied them all. And, and um, um, actually, what I looked at is when you're looking at why kids succeed in this kind of the risk that they're in, it's always because somebody mattered. There's a person. And it's, not, and it's most commonly a parent. It's very commonly a teacher. But it can be a grandparent. It can be a neighbor. It can be somebody in the neighborhood. Resilience isn't just about your kids. It's about your neighbor kids, too. Kids can grow up in bad environments if somebody else in the community mattered. Are you going to be that person? And that's what we're, So we're not just talking about what you can be to your kids or grandkids. We're talking about what you can be to your neighbor kids. We're talking about what you can be to the other kids who come to church. I, I actually gave a, uh, a woman Linda used to have a master public health program in, uh, in Africa, in Kenya. And I was asked to go over and give them their last uh, class before graduation. And I did that and uh, described this concept of resilience. And I said to the class, is anybody here resilient? And the lady raised her hand. 
And I said, what's your risk? And she said, well, my, uh, my father was married seven times and he was an alcoholic. So she's getting a master's degree in public health. She's an American. <coughs> there were 65 doctors and nurses and health educators in the class. So I said, well, then, if your father was married seven times and an alcoholic, the, the front door probably had was circular. Can you imagine how many people came and went if he married seven of them or probably a hundred of them? I mean, this is a busy front door. And, um, and so I said, well, you should have had sex at an early age, multiple sexual partners, sexually transmitted infections. You should have gotten pregnant at an early age, probably multiple, I mean, multiple times. And you should have been at risk for taking drugs, multiple drugs, and, and failing in school. That was your risk. What do you do? I'm a doctor in a mission hospital. Said, so what's the story? Remember I said, somebody matter? She said, so when I was a little girl, a lady came to me and she said, hey, can I take you to church this weekend? I get this. She didn't say because the pastor preaches well. She said, because the people there are really nice. And a little girl said, yeah, I'd like to go work. People are really nice. So she took the little girl to church, and guess what? The people were really nice. And they engaged her, and they included her, and they changed the trajectory of her life. And all that happened because one woman had the courage to say to a little girl, can I pick you up this weekend and take you to church? She didn't see the preacher. This girl couldn't remember one sermon the pastor ever preached. She remembered how nice. She remembered that they, re they reflected the character of Christ. You get that? It, it's about, when we, talk, when we think about how many kids leave church today, think about how many kids leave church with the attitude that we're not very nice. I did a focus group in my own church on kids, and I said, describe adults in, in my church in one word. And their answer was nasty. Uh -huh. And none of those kids attend church today. Not one of them. Nasty. So anyway, go ahead. Well, no, what, what we're, what we're going to be doing these few days is actually kind of moving through these these things that make us resilient. And, yeah. and adults and mentors are coming up. That's what we'll the, the whole touch. Right. Kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. But the, one of the things is you, unconditional you, you, love. You do the meal thing. The, all right. Unconditional love is, is really hard. Right. Sherry has an injured foot. But <laughs> unconditional love is one of the most important things that we need to remember with young people. You know, unconditional love. Warmth in the family. If the family has warmth, it goes well. Well, actually, there's a flip side to, to this. We just published, a, we just got an article accepted in a journal called uh, Adolescent uh, Alcohol and Drug Use. And we asked questions not just about love and warmth in the family. We asked questions about yelling in the family, disrespect, screaming in the family. Well, there's a good correlation between love and warmth and no alcohol and drug use. But, you know, if there's disrespect in the family, if, if the parents yell at each other, there's actually a pretty good correlation with alcohol and drug use. So one of the ways you can make your kids unresilient, scream at each other. One of the ways you can make them resilient, love each other and love your children. Right. Well, family dinners. This is something, um, Gary is one of those really great guys who's able, to, um, who's able to talk to people and get people to work with him. It's an enormous gift. And uh, the, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Florida, every couple of years does what they call a youth risk behavior survey. It's a random sample of youth in, in every state, um, and they have a core set of questions, but they also allow states to ask a few other questions. Well, about five uh, states, and this data is from Idaho, about five states um, looked at uh, the role of family dinner. Columbia University, for a number of years, has looked at family dinners and alcohol and drug use. And many of us studying human behavior decided, we want to look at what else family dinners might relate to. Well, what's family dinner 
a proxy for, an indicator of. It's an indicator of many things that I just said. Um, anthropologists who kind of do observation of things uh, have argued that family dinners, a number of things occur. First of all, there is emotional bonding. You know, in other words, it's a, you know, in almost every culture, if you eat together, it's an emotional bonding experience. You know, food makes us feel good. Now, you know, certain foods make, you know, comfort foods. I don't know if Cassio's here. But certain foods we probably shouldn't eat. But if you eat macaroni and cheese with someone, you fall in love. No. But if, <laughs> if uh, you know, food is how we bond. Sharing a meal has enormous meaning in every human culture. You know, Jesus, the Last Supper, you know, has real meaning because it's sharing that meal. So eating together is emotional bonding. Eating together is communication. You know, TV can't be on. TV can't be on. But it is eating together that we communicate. What happened in your day? Here's what happened in my day. How are things going? You know, that's where we talk, is when we sit down together at a meal. You know, busy lives often keep us apart, and meal allows us to communicate. It's also where we do role modeling. You know, the kids actually learn who we are and what we say at dinner. You know, so it's where we do role modeling, so we do bonding, it's where we do monitoring. He wasn't. He's making me go longer. It's where we do. It's where we do monitoring. What you do today? You know, monitoring. So monitoring, bonding. Um, you know, it's, it's we're almost in communication. Well, in uh, this, Gary gathered this data. Uh, not gathered. Gary got this data from the state of Idaho. And, and you know, all right, we're statisticians. We use weird statistics, but this one's pretty easy to understand. It's called an odds ratio. We looked at the mental health. Of, uh, of, of young people who ate four or more meals per week with their family. Now, odds ratios are compared to those who did not eat that many meals. Feel uh, hopeless, feel sad or hopeless daily for two weeks in the past 12 months. The .54 means they only had about half the chance. 100% is kind of a whole, so .54 is about half. They are half as likely to feel sad or depressed if they had four or more meals with their family. Well, considered suicide in the last 12 months? Again, less than half. 0.48%, 48%. Only half as likely as those without those meals to consider suicide. Planned suicide? Again, about half. Attempted suicide? Again, about half. Hurt themselves? Again, about half. Mental health. Family dinners dealt with depression. Family dinners were a crucial part of the emotional health of young people. Well, you know, we also, I just analyzed data from five northeastern states, the same data set, and I, I did uh, correlations. Um, and we're looking at victimization and being a victim of violence uh, in, in, in the youth's life and family dinners. And we are surprised at the correlations between uh, family dinners and being a victim. Now, being a victim is a very interesting concept because it really indicates that, you know, you give you give the impression that you're willing to be a victim, that you're willing to be hit, that you're willing to be taken advantage of. And above all things, young people don't want to appear that they're willing to be a victim. So if you have, if you have uh, the more dinners you have with your family, you're more likely to wear seatbelts. You know, who would think that wearing a seatbelt, I mean, do you really think maybe that came up at a family dinner? Communication, role modeling. If you eat family dinners, the more family dinners, the more likely you are to have a seatbelt, positive correlation. Even bicycle helmets. That surprised me. Yeah, I wonder if bicycle helmets are at family dinners. Bullied at school. Correlation of being bullied at school and family dinners. Slapped by a girlfriend or boyfriend. Correlation of 0.32. Date rate, positive correlation. 
Committed delinquent act, inverse correlation. If you had the more family dinners, the less likely you were to engage in any type of delinquent act. Use alcohol, even stronger. The more family dinners, the less alcohol. Family dinners are protected for all those reasons that, uh, you know, that I said. Communication, role modeling, bonding, monitoring, supervision. Now remember, we have this other study that shows if you were yelling at those family dinners, it got worse. It's probably why the correlations are one. If there's not good things going on, it doesn't work. Can I actually add something to that? Well, you could add two or three things. Okay, good deal. Alright, well, one of the things that I ask my students at Loma Linda to do oh, that's right. in the adolescent health class is to write, write a paper on family meals. And family meals also predict less alcohol, less tobacco, right. less marijuana, more communication, less sexual activity, less sexual activity, less early sex, better vocabulary, higher grades in school, less likely to drop out of high school, more likely to go to college. And that's turn your cell phone off, turn your television off, and talk. That's the deal. Talk. Yeah. Another recommendation that doesn't have to do with family deals, but has, does have to do with cell phones is when you go to pick your kids up at school, the basket in the front seat. Cell phones turned off, you talk. You talk. And at home, cell phones are only on a half hour each evening, 7 to 7.30. Other than that, cell phones are turned off. We talk in this house. And we've done research on that too, but anyway. By the way, something that goes along with this is kind of interesting with the mental health statistic. Can you go back to the mental health stat? It's on there. <coughs> right there, we actually ran the relationships between excessive computer use oh, yeah. and the same thing. Yes. And the question reads, do you, use, do you use your computer for more than three hours a week on a school day, not good, but not for school activities. And what we found out it was positive for everything, but get this, only among girls. Only among girls. It didn't affect boys as much. It didn't tend to, to predict more substance use if they used a computer more, but there are people today who are saying the computer may be the new drug. And the kids who use the computers don't use drugs as much because their time is occupied by the computer. The fact that they're not using as much drug isn't less concerning, although we're happy they're not, because this is such a big concern, and I think I'm done. No, I, well, I, I think, you know, the thing we're really trying to say is that one of the great ways that we can make our youth, our, our kids resilient, is really, the first thing is in the family. You know, that's biblical, it's sure. Ellen White, the family is crucial. And that that family bonding is so incredibly important. And family dysfunction, the yelling, the screaming, the disrespect, is extraordinarily harmful. Consistent relationships with delinquency, <coughs> with alcohol, drug use, early sexual activity. So really not good. How do we make them resilient? It's really by the connection. And you know, the dinners I think are a proxy, an indicator of the connection. TV off, cell phone off, family dinners mean something in every human culture. So this works internationally. If you look at the literature, it works in China, it works in Pakistan, it works in any place in Europe. So eat with your kids, turn the TV off, bond with them. Well, we'll go on to a couple more things that we're at Resilience. And self-esteem is a complex variable because, you know, you'll hear pre people, some preachers, talk about self-esteem is not a good thing, it's too false. And the literature is complicated, research is complicated. But research does show that a sense of self-worth and purpose in life relates to peer influence resistance. Right? Well, sometimes academics we use fancy terms. But who, you know, peers are the ones who offer drugs to your kids. You know, it is a friend who's a couple years old who will offer alcohol. So you're introduced <laughs> to drugs as a, as a young person by your friends. So one of the reasons you want to know who the kid's friends are, you know, in fact, 
If you know who your kid's friends are, it's also predicted they're not going to use. You know, remember I talked about monitoring is, is a key thing that happens at dinners? Who are your friends and who are you with? Those two things give the best predictor that they're going to use alcohol. And do the kids drugs. know that the parents know? And do the kids know their parents know? That's, that's right. true. That's, that's, that's true. What pro if you ask a kid, what proportion of uh, your friends do your do, do your parents know? And if it gets over fifty percent, they're kind of they're kind of resistant about alcohol and drugs. If you know only a quarter of who your kids hang out with, they're at risk. So monitoring, supervision, bonding, role modeling, crucial things. So, but self-worth and a purpose in life. Now, these two things go together, self-worth and purpose in life. Intentionality, who are you going to be? In the national survey the University of Michigan does, monitoring the future, one of the best predictors of less uh, drug use is you plan to go to college. Purpose in life. Do you have a plan? Do you know where you're going to go? Do you know what you're going to do? If you do, it makes you resilient. Now, if, if you're planning to be a physician, you don't really want a felony record. No, it isn't going to work for you. And so if you have specific goals and plans, you know, and you have a sense, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a physician. I'm going to be a preacher. You're not going to, you'll be a lot less likely to do alcohol, drugs, and be delinquent. Now, it's crucial to base, base self-esteem on real talents and not, not, not existent <laughs> narcissistic conceit. Right? More than now, one of the criticisms of self-concept is we use it too easily. You know, we tell someone they're wonderful when they're not. You know, we tell someone, oh, here's just God's greatest gift on earth. My mother always told me that. But, you know, that's not a good thing. Because we don't need narcissistic conceit, self-centeredness. It's not biblical. It's not something Jesus would do. But what is important is each of us are worth something. Each of us have a talent. And part of the job of a church, of parents, is to kind of help figure out that talent. You know, each of us have a unique gift that can add a lot to the community, a lot to the world, a lot to God's mission, God's kingdom on this earth. And as parents, we need to work with our kids. As church leaders, we need to work in our church to discover that talent. Because a sense of purpose and self-worth makes us resilient. It really increases the young person's ability to resist peer influence. Every one of our kids is going to be offered alcohol, drugs, Every one of our kids is going to be offered the opportunity to shoplift. Every one of our kids is going to be offered a sexual opportunity. What makes them say no? Well, self-worth can, can as purpose. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to do something with my life. If we have no plans, I'm worthless. You know, in, in science, as leaders, teachers, parents, we have to be very careful with what we say. Now, you know, we have these teachers, sometimes we call gatekeepers. Um, when I was in graduate school, um, at the University of Kentucky, I got my PhD, and I mentioned I'm from Chicago and I speak English well. And, and but at the University of Kentucky, I, I picked up a phrase called "you all" um, in, instead of the more appropriate "you guys" that we use in Chicago. <laughs> um, but I had a professor there who, who was quite brilliant and who thought that he was the gatekeeper. And after a test, he passed back papers. He'd say something like, "You know, Ezekiel, you're doing as poorly this year as last year, aren't you?" Or Richard, why are you looking out the window? You're not doing that well. Ezekiel and Richard were gone by the end of the year. Because to be told that in so many days, you know, you don't do that. You know, as a teacher, you don't say, you know, Sally, you're as dumb as your brother Bob. Uh-uh. But some of these adults do that without even thinking. Nothing destroys. Or even worse, you know, how come you aren't good like your sister was? You know, it's an easy thing to do sometimes as a teacher or a parent. 
You, know, you never say, you know, you're as dumb as your father. Don't ever do that. Um, yes, destructive to the child. So self-worth. You are somebody. Remember, the, the Bible teaches that Jesus would have died for one sinner. Each human being is of this unesteemable worth. <coughs> if Jesus would have died for us, you know, we have worth. So we need to discover what that is, that talent is, focus, develop that talent, so young people can can go can 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 have resistance. Right. Mentoring. Well, if I yeah, we're gonna run out of time for mentoring. Let me say a few things about self-esteem. One of the, a few more things. One of the things that's that's really important, I think, for for the you know, the, the, there's a I've seen churches work to identify talents in the church. You know, what talents do we have? You know, sometimes it's very easy in a church to have three people run the church forever. Spiritual gifts. Yeah, spiritual gifts. See, that's what we're talking about. What is your gift that you can offer that gives you a sense of self-worth? If we can involve our young people in church, identify their gift, identify their talent, you know, provide them a, a, an opportunity to lead in that area, you know, that makes them have a strong sense of worth, a strong <laughs> sense of purpose, resilient to the opportunities to get in trouble. So in our churches, looking at spiritual gifts is crucial. Now, looking at what talents our young people have is crucial. It's by those talents, it's by those gifts, it's giving our young people a chance to exhibit those gifts. So in terms of what we looked at so far tonight, two things. What are we doing to strengthening the family? How are we making the family function better? You know, how are we doing our best to have the family strengthened? And it's, and it's uh, unconditional love, and it's monitoring, and it's role playing. What is our church doing to strengthen the family? There's nothing better we can do than strengthen the family of our church to keep our young people in church, to make them resilient against all the things that are hitting them every hour of the day, from the internet to the television to peers in their lives. What are we doing to identify the spiritual gifts the young people in our church have? Our own children have. We have different talents. Um, and all of you know this in your families. I have an incredible fear of flying. You never want to fly with you're liable to have a bruised knee, arm, hand. You just don't want to, yeah, Gary, no. You don't want to fly with me. My wife, my daughter, loved flying. When my daughter was very little, and we would fly, and there would be turbulence, I'd go, whee! You know, she just would love turbulence to this day. She's 39. She hopes for turbulence. You know, she checks the weather to think it's going to be rough, and then she looks forward to the flight. All right, I do the exact opposite. My wife loves uh, flying, too. Turbulence don't bother at all unless she's playing Sudoku and she can't make the mark. So it kind of bothers her. I, I don't, you know, the biggest, you know what the biggest fear that you people have? What's the biggest fear besides dying? Now, what's the biggest fear besides dying? Speaking in public. All right? You know, for whatever reason, it doesn't bother me. I can't get on an airplane without throwing up. My wife can't get up front without throwing up. You know, we each have a talent that God has given us that we need to develop. And, you know, that's what, you know, resilience is. Knowing what that talent is, developing that talent in ourselves, our children, the youth in our church. We do a lot to protect them if we identify, nurture, and have them, have them develop that talent and leadership. You know, maybe it's someone that organizes. Maybe it's someone that leads music. Doing things behind the scenes. My wife loves to do things behind the scenes. She creates order faster than I can create chaos. You know, she's always amazed that when we get to a motel room, she goes to the bathroom, by the time she comes up, I crash the room. She doesn't know how I do that. It's a talent. My son has the same talent. 
Um, but you know, the talent, that's how we have self-worth. That's how we have self-esteem. Right, tomorrow we'll begin moving into the other aspects in our time tomorrow of what makes resilience. And the next thing we're going to move toward, and this is Gary's real specialty, and he began talking about this, is mentoring, the role of adults. Because families are God's first line of defense against sin in this world. But families don't always work. Now, families can be dysfunctional. Families can yell at each other. Remember I said in studies we have done that yelling and screaming and disrespect are very, very highly causal of mental health problems, of, uh, of alcohol, drug use, and delinquency. So what can protect those kids? Each of us have a responsibility for protecting those young people in our communities, our churches, and our neighborhoods. And so, you know, if you don't have kids, your kids are gone, like mine, empty nesters, we still have a major role to play in our church with our youth. You know, one of the most important things Jesus said was he invited the children to come to him. You know, children, in fact, I'm a sociologist, which means I study people, I just don't help them. But sociology, we always kind of look at how roles change over time. You know, children didn't have much value in much of human history. There may have been some psychological reasons. Half of kids died, and so parents didn't get too attached. But children were not seen as very useful because they, they ate your food and they didn't home in, they didn't plow many acres. So children weren't very valuable. So the disciples kind of pushed the children away. They're acting within their culture. That's kind of what we do. But Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. Because as children are in their faith is what you all need to be. So children are very important. Not just our children, but all the children in the community, in the church, and in our neighborhoods. And so as adults, we'll begin talking tomorrow about mentoring and the role that the mentoring plays in making your results. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.